Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. I'm sick of being a side Indian character. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Amina Ziard. And joining me in studio today, we've got my co-host... Uh, me. That's Ahmed Yusuf. <laughs> oh, me too. Arundhati. And me as well. <laughs> and that's just free. So, before we begin, we'd like to do acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. We have Giselle Nguyen, writer and columnist for Daily Life in Studio with us, and today we look at... The Naman Haider Inquest and the Lure of Radicalization, with a featured story on the exploitation of international students in the workforce. But first, let's welcome Giselle Nguyen. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. So thank you for coming to the show. And so the first part is where we'll be debuting a new segment. Um, It's not really new. It's kind of of old. Well, it's not really old, but... It's like two two episodes old. I'm going to say three. I'm going to say three. And it's called? It's called Up Close. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the question, Giselle, is, would you rather eat a raw onion or drink a gallon of olive oil? By the way, you you have a period of time, and that time is around 25 seconds, and it starts... Now. I would definitely eat a raw onion. If it's good enough for our former Prime Minister, it's good enough for me. So are we, are we talking brown onion or red onion? Uh, just any onion. Yeah, that's fine. No, a litre of no, olive oil no, would brown, be freaking well, gross. Well, why, why, why not brown onion? Do you have a... No, because red onion is meant to be eaten raw, right? So that's okay. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, like it's the in salads and like, stuff. Would you eat an entire onion raw? Like no, it's look, I wouldn't. But <laughs> if I had to pick between that and the olive oil... <laughs> Like I feel like olive oil would be very. Kind That'd be of, freaking gross. That'd like be very it would just hot. you just get like real oily mouth. It's not very good for your health. Yeah. yeah um, the brown onion, like the onion, sounds bad as well. But it, like, would you rather is not meant to have exactly. good options, yeah. right? Yeah. So, it's true. Yeah. It's also, yeah. Like, hang on, is any would anyone else go the olive oil? I mean, it might help with like your health. It your wouldn't ingestion. help with you. No, olive oil's got <laughs> so much gallon. Is it a gallon? Oh, is it a gallon or a liter? I said gallon. I what's said a gallon? gallon? Oh, I don't know. no, 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 no. Gallon that's just sounds good for you. Like, knowledgeable. So yeah, what's I, a gallon? I, said, I don't know how much a gallon, is, a gallon? is like. Isn't that like how oil is sold by a gallon? Probably, I but American, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say that it's probably like half a liter, and that's a lot. Half versus a lot. versus an onion, which is like the size of a tennis ball, if that. But so I, obviously, I, I onion. I would have I would have given you like a humongous onion though. Because yeah, I feel like gallon of oil is a lot. So yeah, to make a huge the... onion, like it would be gross, and you have bad breath, but you probably wouldn't feel disgusting. Okay. Well, like now we've, we've broken, <laughs> <laughs> we've broken the ice. Uh, I wanna, I wanna kind of ask you about your writing, and sure. and when did you start? Uh, start in general, or start with daily life? Um, start in general. Um, I guess that's a hard question because I've always kind of written stuff like from when I was young I would write stories and then I went to the uni and did journalism and so I don't know like I've always kind of been writing but in in terms of doing it more professionally or whatever um, I have kind of in the last five or ten years done some stuff but it's only really ramped up in maybe like the last six months to being a very regular thing. What's changed? Um, well, I got fired from a job and I was very sad. What happened? And, um, they said that I didn't have enough experience and I was like, well, 
you probably could have figured that out by looking at my resume before you hired me, but okay. So I got fired from a job and it was a, a real bad time and I the first thing that I pitched to daily life was comparing being fired to like a really bad breakup because they kind of feel exactly the same. So that's the first thing that I wrote for Daily Life. And then I did a couple of other things for them. And then someone went away. Um, one of their regular writers went away for the summer. So I, they asked me to fill in every week. Um, so I did that. And then the, the summer ended and then they asked me to stay on. So getting fired kind of was good in the end. <laughs> yeah, it actually worked out pretty well for you, didn't it? And you're talking about a few things that you've written and you talk about uh, how you've kind of compared, I guess, being fired to a breakup. You've mm -hmm. also written something about broken friendships. Tell us about that piece and how you Okay, broken, the broken friendships one? Yeah. Um, that was actually... So usually the stuff that I write for Daily Life is stuff that I pitch, but sometimes they come up with ideas themselves and then they're like, can you write about this? So they were like, hey, we, we had this meeting and we... Th this is an idea we came up with and we thought you would be a good person to write it. And I was like, okay, I guess I seem like a person with no friends. Cool. So, um, oh. <laughs> but, but I do actually have experience in that from over the years. So I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and then I sat down and I wrote it, but it was, it was kind of weird actually, because I started that piece with an anecdote about a former friend, but I tried really hard to just make it an anecdote and not like anything mean, but like people like that were friends with us both and are still friends with her and not friends with me were pretty pissed about it, but like whatever. So Yeah, because I remember like I, I read it and I was looking at it. It made a lot of sense because usually say you have a breakup, you usually talk to your friends, right? Yeah. What happens when you don't when you have a breakup with a friend? Yeah, it's hard and it's weird and I think in some ways it's kind of worse as well. Because like I don't know, especially if you've been friends with someone for a really long time and then suddenly you're not and and then sometimes you can patch it up or sometimes it's just like done forever. So, yeah, that like that piece was good for me to write because it was something that I hadn't really thought about for a long time and kind of just like compartmentalized my feelings and been like, oh, I don't want to think about that anymore. But it's kind of good to get stuff out. And I think um, it's an experience that a lot of people have as well. So it's nice to write about my experience and know that I might be able to help someone else who's going through something like that. How did it feel writing it? Um, it felt okay, but I, I just had to make sure that I wasn't being petty, like, um, which is because a lot of the stuff I write is about personal experiences. So I always have to be sure that I'm just being honest without making it like a really personal thing against someone. Um, although I guess you can't really help how people feel and no one no one really likes reading stuff about themselves that is not that positive. So it's a risk. But I, I guess how do you kind of uh, manage writing about yourself in such personal terms and making it so public? How, how does that work? Um, I mean, I guess it's not really that big a deal to me. Like, when I was a teenager, I had an online journal and stuff, and that was just, like, every detail of my life. So, I don't know, I just... It's never bothered me that much. And I wrote something about a year and a half ago for Rookie magazine, and that was about, um, like, painful sex stuff. So as soon as that was published, and I was... And if you Google my name, it's one of the first results. So I was like, well, now, if you Google my name, everyone knows, like, these really intricate details about my vagina so like anything anything else is totally not a big deal compared to that right so yeah. I mean I guess was that rookie article like one of the first things you'd written for like such a wide audience yeah I mean I before that because I used to do music writing so I'd had a bunch of stuff published, but it wasn't really about me. So I guess the rookie thing was the first thing that was about my personal life that I had chosen to put out there. And it was kind of weird because um, it was something that I hadn't really talked about. Not that many people knew about it. And then suddenly mm. it was out there and, like, my parents didn't know and then they knew and stuff. And it was kind of weird. But, like, looking back, I, like, I wouldn't change it. But it is definitely an odd thing to have a thing that you like have only told a select few people and then suddenly everyone that you've ever met and people you also haven't met know yeah. stuff about you that's pretty private but yeah I just don't really have any boundaries so <laughs> did you oh sorry no. did you feel like I guess diving in with something like that personal straight away and sort of 
getting that out of the way helped you start writing other things like for daily life that are maybe just as personal? Um, yeah, probably. But like the, yeah, I don't know. Like I, it's, it's a tough balance as well because with the daily life stuff, I don't particularly want to make my column like only about me. Like I don't, I think most things that I'm writing have a point to them, which is like, I want to talk about this stuff because other people might be going through it or it's something that is kind of common, but not that discussed, blah, blah, blah. But I think like there's definitely a point where it can be too much and it just feels like someone is kind of just putting like putting themselves in the center of attention for no reason other than they like attention so um that is something that I'm really aware of and I have tried to kind of branch out a bit and write about other things too so other than me would you say you're the kind of writer that I don't know Overshares? You I'm know? such an oversharer, it's fine. <laughs> like, if you ask anyone that's friends with me, they can probably tell you some pretty gross stuff about me because <laughs> I just tell everyone everything. So, like, I, I remember reading a piece that you wrote, and I know how it feels to kind of be in the same, this strange kind of spot where you're grieving for a grandparent that you've oh, never yeah. met. I'd met her, but um, she lived in um, Canada. So, she she was always in Canada and I was always here. So I've met her, but probably like five times in my life. And she doesn't speak English and I speak Vietnamese, but it's not very good. And then towards the end of her life, she like had really bad dementia. So she didn't really know who anyone was. So like, I don't remember the last proper conversation that I had with her. And I saw the last time I saw her was probably about four years ago, but she was in a nursing home and like I just came and said hi and stuff, but it wasn't really anything. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty weird feeling. And she was my last grandparent that was living as well. So yeah, it was it was because odd. I saw the contrast that you made, and I kind of felt kind of that similar contrast in terms of having a, a grandparent die very young that I've never met and not really known, and then having kind of a great uncle that's kind of a grandparent that died but I've spent a lot of time in. Yeah. And then having that kind of like, feeling that contrast, I should be feeling something for my mother's mother. Yeah. But I don't really feel that. Yeah, I mean, my my other grandma lived with us when I was growing up and she died when I was eight or nine. And that that was weird because it was like a huge change to my everyday life because she was always there and then suddenly she wasn't there and with this one like she was never there so but I think just the concept of it was weird and then seeing my dad being really sad was also like I think anyone seeing their parents like grieving it's a pretty hard thing to see especially because my dad's not a person that usually shows any kind of feelings. How did it make you feel seeing that? Um, I mean my parents live in Sydney so I don't see them that often but um My mom told me, so my grandma was in a nursing home and then she just kind of stopped eating and drinking and then my mom called me and told me that and she said that when that happened, my dad, like, cried and he never cries, so that was kind of jarring to hear but then when when she actually died, he was kind of just like, oh, yeah, like, it's, it's sad but, like, that's just life kind of thing. And then, so I think he kind of dealt with it before it happened And I said, are you going to go over for the funeral? And he was like, no, because he saw her in October. So he was like, oh, I I feel like I already got a chance to say goodbye. And then I was going home anyway for Lunar New Year, but it happened that um, my grandma had passed away like a week before. So then there was funeral stuff as well. Um, And it was just like, it was just really sad. And I, I don't, he's not a person that talks about his feelings that much. So I don't really know how he feels about it. But like, even just my mum saying that he had cried about and stuff was pretty sad for me to hear. Cause so. you mentioned the article kind of seeing your parents as children yeah. and seeing that contrast. Mm. How did that make you feel? It's just, yeah, like I said, my dad's not a person that shows any emotion. So when he does, it's kind of like awkward and I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And yeah, it was, it was just really sad and I guess it would be different if I lived at home because um, my parents are Buddhist and there's like a 49-day mourning period so they have to go to the temple like once a week during that time so my sister had to do that but I was back a week ago and that was the end of the mourning period so I was there for the last one which is just like at the temple and there's a lot of chanting and stuff. I don't really get it but I was there. So <laughs> Yeah, like I can kind of relate in terms of not seeing... Like, at least my dad, not seeing him be overly emotional, but yeah. then having these little small stints of him being emotional and how that just, like, 
yeah. weighs on you. It's pretty weird. Like I've seen my dad cry once, and I think I was about twelve. But like, I think that I like I've I, seen my I, dad cry twice, and the first time I saw him cry was like when I was eleven. Yeah, I was twelve, and my parents like had had an argument or something, and he cried, and it was. Yeah, it was just super weird for me because, like, I've seen my mum cry and I've seen my sisters cry and all that stuff, but, like, never seen my dad cry, so. How does it feel to write about grief so publicly? Um, I don't know. Like, I think it's, it just felt like something that I should do because she passed away and I felt pretty weird about it. And then, um, it took, like, I, I waited for a few weeks before I did write about it because I wanted to kind of process it and not write about it straight away because I knew that my feelings would possibly change um but yeah I don't know like uh, I had people messaging me and emailing me and stuff about that piece just saying like oh I totally felt the same way about like some ex-relative who I didn't really know and I, I don't like I felt weird for being so sad when I didn't really know them and stuff so I don't know I think like in with any stuff that I write about my own life it's pretty much just sharing an experience that I know that other people will probably have and maybe maybe they might feel isolated or weird for having such an experience. So I think it's always helpful to read something that you can relate to and know that other people are going through the same things as you're going through, which might not always make that much sense. On that note, um, you write for Daily Life and some people say that's sort of like a women's focus magazine. Um, in the same vein of like writing things that I guess like people can feel like oh well I feel that too you know I can relate to that and I don't feel so like alone and uncomfortable reading about that how do you feel about having a platform that is like predominantly women focused um and being able to write about things to women well it's funny because daily life is definitely marketed as like a feminist website or whatever but they do have male writers and they do talk about some stuff that isn't specifically women focused but I do really appreciate the feminist aspect of it because I have written a bit of stuff like specifically about feminism and it's nice to know that I don't have to hold back on that stuff because other publications might be like no that's like too challenging for our audience or whatever but with them they kind of encourage it um but I don't know, like, I feel like the stuff that I write about anyway, like, women women would probably be more interested in it and relate to it more anyway. So, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really change the way that I write because I, I just write things that I would want to read, I guess. So, yeah, but, um, I, yeah, I like Daily Life because there's a lot of mix of, of stuff and there's quite a lot of diversity and stuff. So for a mainstream publication, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think you wrote something recently about feminist men. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my ex-boyfriend <laughs> deleted me from Facebook wow. the day after that was published, and I was like, are, are you not just proving my point? <laughs> like, because the, the whole thing was about, like, dudes who were like, oh, I'm a feminist, but then when they do something sexist and you're like, that's a bit sexist, they're just like, well, screw you. And, yeah. like, and then I'm like, dude, you just did exactly that. Like, thanks for proving my point. But, yeah. I, I, because I just, specifically with that one, I feel like every single woman I've ever spoken to has had, like, exactly the same experience. Yeah, totally. So that's why, like, I, when he was all pissed about it, I was like, well, whatever. Like, it's not, firstly, it's not only about you and also it's not just me being this, like, bitter person with a, like, personal vendetta against you because I spoke to heaps of people and pretty much everyone was like, let me tell you about this time that I, like, dated some guy that said he was a feminist and then this gross thing happened. So... Yeah, that, like, I think that pissed a lot of people off, but I don't really care, so. (laughs) I think, like, the turnover, I mean, like, the positive effect that that article had, like, totally should outweigh anything negative, because... Yeah, yeah. I mean, some some guy, someone told me that they got into an argument with some guy about that article, and he said about me, like, oh, well, this this piece is probably, like, subconscious, like, unconsciously self-critical, because she's just impossible to have a conversation with. (gasps) And I just like, I just love it when men get angry. (laughs) (laughs) It was really cathartic to read. I remember reading that being like, wow, this is like almost every single man I've ever met. (laughs) It was just, it was just a really good thing to read. And I think, um, I think 
writing like that that's just really like you know to the point and it, it's not afraid to be critical of people that we're sometimes not like sometimes I don't feel like I'm allowed to be critical of like quote unquote allies because I have to be grateful yeah, no. for what they're doing no I reckon the yeah. allies who who are like screaming about being allies are the worst ones yeah. and and but the thing is I feel like the piece that, like, before I edited it was a bit, a lot more scathing, but my friend was like, you should probably dial that down. And I was like, <laughs> okay. But I think that, like, people, men especially, are so self-aware these days. So in the past, like, you would be able to spot a sexist from a mile away, but now, because they know all this terminology and they there's a lot of, like, progressive, mm. progressive. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, there's a lot of progressive men who, or so-called progressive men who just aren't, but it's like if you move in the, in the right circles and stuff, you can figure out how to be kind of um, convincing. Mm. So, I mean, and case in point, my ex-boyfriend used to say, like, oh, I don't, I don't call myself a feminist because we, like, know the track record of that. I'd, like, rather my actions speak for me. And I was like, well, they don't. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I, like, people are really self-aware and it's yeah. the same with, like, white allies or whatever. Mm. Like, there's just heaps of people who who are really good at talking the talk, but they don't do anything to prove it. Yeah. And, I like, I just... It's just gross. Like, I, it makes me feel gross. I feel so. like also that's, like, kind of like a a new person, new experience because, like you said, like, men are becoming so much more self-aware. There's not a lot of literature about that and so the only way you can write about it is to talk about it personally yeah and I think that like um it's not just men becoming more self-aware it's that feminism is so much more mainstream than it used to be like even if you look now there's people like Beyonce and whoever just kind of being very vocal about it and when I was like growing up there was no one that was really saying that in such a public way. So, like, a lot more teenage girls will call themselves feminists now than they did when I was growing up, for example. So um, people know that it's a, a thing they should be doing, so ev- ev- everyone's doing it, and that's good that the conversation is out there, but it means that you get a lot more weeds. <laughs> uh, another thing that, I, that I've noticed uh, that you wrote about is growing up and growing up in Australia mm-hmm. often you're afraid to to be um, I guess playing on those stereotypes that people have of um, people of color and, and how that affects um, people how did you deal with that well I didn't mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of what I wrote about so I grew up in in Sydney in the suburbs so my my dad when I was born we lived in Cabramatta which is like the Vietnamese capital of Sydney until I was about four and my dad still works there so all because he's a doctor and all his clients are there but then we moved to the hills which is like a very kind of affluent white suburb so I was there from when I was four until I moved to Melbourne four years ago when I was 23 so um so yeah so I went the primary school I went to there were quite a few Asian kids but then I moved to a um, all-girls school when I was in year five and I stayed there all the way through to the end of high school and that was a really, 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 really white environment there. So, and I think I... Growing up, like, when I was in primary school, I didn't think about it that much but then when I started having friends um, who were, like, really privileged white people and there's nothing wrong with them. I'm still friends with a lot of them but it's just, like, a, a different world and I was like I just wished that I was like them in some ways so I'd be like embarrassed about my parents and then be like maybe if I was white boys would like me and all that kind of silly stuff um and that kind of went probably like all the way through high school and I don't really know when it changed but at some point I was like yeah this kind of sucks like because I feel like if you make racist jokes about yourself, it kind of makes your friends think it's fine to do the same thing. And when I look back now on, and remember some of the stuff that we used to joke about, I'm like, man, that is so uncool. But at the time, I think I was like, no, that's fine, because I didn't want to be like a killjoy or whatever. I'm like, I'm so fun. You can say anything you want about me. How did that... Like, you, you're not sure when that changed, but how did you feel at the time in that environment it was like I don't know how it feels to be in a very it wasn't very white but still very like um kind of like well like kind of white well like I'm gonna say white I'm gonna say very white yeah. uh, environment and, and being one of the few I guess um African people in in that environment how people 
mistook me and, and kind of like said things like, oh, well, you know, you're not really black, Ahmed. You know, <sighs> I'm more black than you because I can play basketball and I think I can rap. Yeah. Um, so, so how did you feel in, in a similarly white environment? I mean, it was weird because there were, so in my grade at school, there were probably 100 girls and maybe like 10 were Asian, but most of the other Asian girls were international students. So they would all kind of hang out with each other. And then my, and then people, not my friends, but people would be like something, something like the Asians. I'd be like, dude, what does that even mean? They'd be like, oh, no, no, not you, because you're a cool Asian, not an international Asian. And I was like, that's super racist, but... Um, and it's weird how people kind of draw those divisions because it's all so arbitrary. Like if my parents hadn't been in a war and then had to flee and come here, I also would be an international Asian. And it's not, I think at the time I, and I know that a lot of other people have similar experiences who I've spoken to kind of take pride in being like an Australian Asian and people like, you're such a banana, like yellow on the outside, white on the inside. I'm like, I know, right? I'm such a banana. Is that like a thing? Yeah, how gross is that? A lot of people say Oreo because like black on black on um, the outside, white on the inside. I never knew anything yeah. about a banana. Yeah, and there was a girl that I went to school with who was Indian and she was like, I'm a crunchy because I'm like brown on the outside and blonde on the inside. And I was oh like, I think God. it's also a Coconut. I think when yeah. I was growing coconut up, the word was coconut. Was coconut. <laughs> yeah, there's, heap, there's heaps, and they're all as heinous as each other. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but that was like definitely something to be proud of. Like, yeah, I'm totally white inside. And the thing is that these kinds of things still, people still say stuff like that. Like a few years ago, my housemate, who was my really good friend, was like, "Oh yeah, you're like a white acting Asian." And I was like, "What does that even mean?" Oh my god! Yeah, people are the worst. Yeah, they're they're really really bad. <laughs> I think that's one thing uh, we can take away is that people yeah. are the worst. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, and and also growing up in Australia isn't very good. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming, uh, Giselle. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Yeah, really appreciate it. <laughs> and I guess where can listeners find you and your work? Well, I just launched a website a few weeks ago, so it's GiselleNewin.com. <laughs> I also have a Facebook page which is my full writing name, which is Giselle Onyinyuan. So that's my middle name. Or you can follow me on the various social medias at Hey School Girl. And, yeah, read my stuff. Yeah, read her stuff. <laughs> it's really good. Like, <laughs> I really you. enjoyed your stuff. Um, and, yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Dig it. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal uh, Party. This is not an easy so, day uh, for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. Goodbye, Tony. Bye-bye. Goodbye, Tony. Tony, time to go. Goodbye. Roll over. Nothing popping in the bed. Bye-bye, Tony. Now we're going into the Week That Was segment where we highlight some of the most notable or infamous stories from the past week. And so radicalisation is a buzzword we hear, and especially so in Australia, following the 2014 Naman Haider incident, which saw a police officer stabbed and Naman Haider himself executed during the altercation. An inquest to the incident was heard early last week, citing police officers acted upon self-defence and fears they would otherwise be beheaded by Naman Haider. Other reports and articles highlight Numan expressing and practicing his Muslim identity as precursors to the altercation itself. What this incident and the discourse that follows highlight to me is the lure of and the Australian obsession with radicalization and even the academic study of radicalization theory and counterterrorism. We often pathologize and compartmentalize impressionable and misguided people like Numan Haider, and I want to know why we do so. A Queering the Air 3CR interview with Arun Kundani provides some insight. And so for our listeners who are unaware, Arun Kundani is a former editor of the journal Race and Class. He was educated at Cambridge University, or miseducated as he says, and holds a PhD from 
London Metropol- Metropolitan University and teaches at NYU, New York University. This period of, of around 10 years ago, uh, when, when a number of people wanted to, to try and develop this idea of radicalization, gave birth to a whole um, body of, of, of scholarship and, and scholarship that was somewhat bogus, I would argue. So um, some of this was done in, in university departments, um, often funded by the uh, Department of Homeland Security in the United States or by um, the uh, Home Office in the United Kingdom. Um, other uh, scholarship done by neoconservative think tanks on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but in all cases, what they were trying, you know, what they were trying to do was to come up with a theory that would say um, religious ideology is the root cause of, of what makes someone a terrorist. And we have a model of that process that tells us here are the indicators uh, that someone is going down this process of becoming a terrorist driven by religious ideology, right? And millions, millions of dollars on both sides of the Atlantic have been spent trying to find some kind of evidence to back up this model of radicalization. Of course, the evidence simply isn't there because that's not how someone becomes a terrorist. Um, but nevertheless, um, a kind of consensus emerged in, the, in spite of the lack of evidence um, that these models could work. And so what you end up with is a list of indicators that can be used by law enforcement agencies that say, here are the things to look for that tell you this person who's not yet a terrorist, but is going to be a terrorist in the future. And of course, it turns out that those indicators uh, of of so-called radicalization are very, you know, very much um, to do with expressions of religious identity um, rather than any real relationship to violence or terrorism. That was interesting because uh, a lot of things that I've been hearing about Newman Haidar was, oh my God, um, he's going to he's gonna cut my head off because he's got a knife. And these two officers have guns. And, and, and also kind of like this hysteria, this young boy is going to maim two armed um, older officers is, I feel like it's his fancy, this idea of who Newman Haider was opposed to the reality of it. Right. Um, so like I was running with the idea that what if everything police officers said was true? What if? What if he really was a teen who was, you know, troubled and he really was going to hurt them, you know, he brought a knife with him to arm himself or whatever. I assumed everything just as, as it was said. I backtracked. What would create a person like Naman Haider? That was what I was interested in. You know, why would someone end up like that? And truthfully, this is something I talk with, you know, my other colleagues. Someone doesn't become a radical because they read the Quran wrong. That <laughs> yeah. is just not, you know, th- that just doesn't happen. You know, you... There is something else that happens. And in that interview, it goes on, and Arun Kudnani talks about how when we talk about this radicalization, for example, um, or even... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Terrorism or extremism. Extremism is something you can use to silence dissent. That's something that, you know, the British colonial times used to describe Indians who actually wanted autonomy. They wanted independence. They called them extremists. Martin Luther King was called an extremist because he wanted rights, too. So when we look at the language of extremism in history, it's it's usually um, to quash dissent. So that's somewhere something that we need to be careful of. Um, ex- uh, terrorism, on the other hand, is an actual crime. It's a non-state actor. How that, it is, how that is defined um, is quite different. However, 
it is now seen that it, before you can even become a terrorist, that's where people are cracking down. It's this idea of perceptive harm, you know, perceptive danger. But also, who, who is called a terrorist? And like, for example, a few weeks ago, Barack Obama and the U.S. government drone 150 Somalis. That's not terrorism. Um, right. The Brussels attack is terrorism, and that is terrorism. But why don't mm-hmm. we call um, what the U.S. government have been doing routinely? Um, dropping drones at a number of countries um, where they think terrorism lies, which is a ninth, like, I think um, Edward Snowden, who, you know, everyone knows who Edward Snowden is, when he released that document, he, you know, it said that 90% of of drone strikes don't hit the intended target. That's 90%. So you're hoping that 10% of, uh, of there's a small 10% chance of someone who's actually a terrorist getting hit. And I just wonder, is innocent lives in in um, places like Somalia, Yemen, the Middle East, and, and, and elsewhere, not worth consideration that you you just say, oh, 10% chance it'll hit the tiger? Oh, that's fine. That, that's, that's, oh, that's okay. Not taking any safeguards to protect people, um, apparently, because, you know, America, the free world, because they care about everyone, don't they? Yeah, and, and you know, it's sometimes um, argued that, oh, they're sympathizers, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if they're not... Uh, if, not, if they're not um, the attackers themselves, if they're not like the terrorists themselves, then they are sympathizers. And that's kind of like justified that way. And I guess what people don't understand is that foreign policy has something to do, and domestic policy as well, has everything to do with the way how people like Naman Haider might have felt marginalized. And because they don't have the language, they don't have the outlet to channel that, uh, how do we say, that grief, you could say, they turn to things like, you know, violent... Uh, or whatever violence, because that sounds very attractive. You know, they think that is the only outlet that is available to them, and so you have this like the system that doesn't allow for you to express, does not allow for you to dissent, does not allow for you to explore that grief and explore that uh, complex things happening. You know, a situation living in Australia and your homeland is being bombed, and you know the perspective of sorry the yeah the perspective. Um, uh, canceling of your passport and how that affects people we don't talk about that we just say oh this guy was just crazy and he was just <laughs> he read the quran wrong i've been in all rap this year at the awards yeah don't get me wrong i love hip-hop obviously but tonight it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. Oh, Thugger! What's up, young Thug? No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name, yeah. Hang on one second, I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. One of Australia's greatest resources is its educational system. The high number of international students that travel from far and wide to study in Australia. But what's happening to them when they get here? Tonight on Four Corners as 7-Eleven goes into damage control, we expose the wage scam at the heart of the multi-billion dollar convenience store empire. An investigation by ABC's Four Corners and Fairfax Media found systemic corruption and exploitation to one of Australia's greatest economic commodities, international students. I wondered, is this limited to 7-Eleven? Are international students elsewhere being exploited? Um, Nina, hi, Rina. This is Nina. She's... Um, National President of the Council of International Students of Australia. I first asked Nina if she was exploited. I've been exploited uh, once for a couple of weeks in, in one of the, I guess, um, cafes. She didn't know that she was being underpaid at the time. 
I wondered how that made her feel. I basically came and then had a bit of training, um, you know, doing the normal productive work for a couple of days. Um, didn't know that I was uh, you're actually supposed to get paid if you're doing you know, a productive work during those days. Um, right now, I guess, um, I felt like at the same time, I don't really, um, I understand that, yes, um, there's that part of me that, well, I was deceived and I shouldn't be treated that way. And if I if I knew that I was exploited, I would have probably say something to the employers, but putting myself in other people's shoes, um, it, it's really, um, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to um, say, or I wouldn't even dare to, to, to speak up sometimes if um, it, it's, it's that desperation. People often ask, if you know you're being exploited, why don't you quit? Find a better job. But that's not a reality afforded to some. Um, actually, they know that they're being exploited, well aware that they're being exploited, but um, there's really there's nothing they can do. That's the reason, like, no matter how many times you talk to these students, you know, you're being exploited, but they will keep saying that, well, I, I really need a job. I really need the money. So I know I'm being exploited. Um, yes, like, I'm, I'm being injured. There are cases where they're being injured, but I don't want, I want to talk about it. Like, I, I really need the money. So um, it's a dilemma, really, to be very honest. The few jobs that are available to international students are often those in their diasporic communities. And that's where some of the exploitation happens. Jobs that are advertised to them are those who are actually paying below the minimum wage. So students look to say, just look at Gumtree or the local communities through forums, all, a lot of the jobs because they're communicated through their own community. They kind of there's this perpetuation of um, this, this culture where it's okay to advertise such uh, job that pays below the minimum wage because you know it, it's fellow communities and um, they they are they're fine with this. The quick brown dog jumped over a lazy yeah. fox. I think that's what the quick brown dog did. That's... I mean, re- really, it's not even impressive. The quick brown fox to jump over like a fucking fence if you want to impress people. I'm just saying. Like, so, so what's your name? Fox. My name's Ken. This is Ken. He knows oh too well about being underpaid in the workplace. But for him, his experience hit pretty hard. So I, when I first came to Melbourne, I thought I'd be able to find a job the same way I did in Singapore, in Indonesia, in the States. But in Melbourne, it, it really wasn't like that. And I, I worked at a Chinese restaurant, which I'm not going to name here, but I worked at a Chinese restaurant which paid me $10 an hour. And that's way below the minimum wage, not to mention, like, based on my age as well, but it's it's way below the minimum wage. And when I brought this up, n- no one sided with me. And it seems really strange to me that I would come to a foreign country, work in a restaurant with people who have experienced the same experiences that I have, come from the same cultural background, and yet instead of sympathizing, they decide to, to, to exploit you. And they decide, because they know how hard it is for you to find a job. And they know how, to, how hard it is to make a living and you don't have a choice. You know, you don't, you don't get to put it off and decide that I'm going to wait for something better because you have to make that rent. You know, you have to make those bills. And they know the position they're in and that's why they know you're vulnerable and that you will take any job that will pay you. Why don't people speak about workplace exploitation when it comes to international students. Why don't we see the same sort of outrage that's shown to exploitation that happens in faraway countries? What I find really, really interesting about this is that like, I come from a, you know, being exploited um, point of view. Whereas if we're looking at your, you know, your local Australian residents who don't tend to experience this as often, that they don't really think twice about it. And like we live in an age where people worry about the fur that you wear. They worry about where their shoes are made. And they worry about, you know, where whether their coffee beans are ethically sourced. But we're perfectly fine heading to a dumpling restaurant 
on a Friday night to celebrate with friends and have a few mojitos afterwards, whatever your lifestyle is. Knowing that those people who work in those dumpling restaurants are exploited. Are people just like them, possibly university students, who are working for half the wage that they're working for and doing the same amount of work? And they have no support network to help them with. So Ken talked about having, you know, like people talking about, oh, we got to have ethical fur, we got to have ethical this and that, but not really caring about, I guess, how so many people are being exploited in the workplace and we're going to have cheap dumplings today. Oh, they, they only cost $8 and we get 20 pieces? Wow, that's amazing. I don't want to think about how much the workers are being paid. And I guess, how do, how do, you, how do you all feel about that kind of, I guess it's called um, conditional kind of morality and ethics? Um, I think this is an extension, perhaps, of the food industry, or the dining industry, rather. And to borrow some of the phrases um, from the documentary, The Search for of General So, I think that's what it's called. Um, a restaurant person, a Chinese restaurant person, said, and I quote, that there is a downward appreciation of Chinese food. And when you go to um, Italian restaurants or French restaurants, you will pay the price. But for Chinese and Asian restaurants, they can't really afford to do the same. Mm. Like, people will not shell their money. They will not not even shell their money. They just won't, like, spare a couple more dollars. And so it's driving, you know, it's driving that industry down. At the same time, that translates to people's um, salaries and their wages, that it's also going to be pretty low. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, the onus is not onto any of these um, restaurants, but what I'm saying is it's part of a structural and uh, bigger, I guess, disadvantage Definitely, for those yeah. restaurants. Because we, we all have the idea that, you know, Italian food is fancy food, and um, when we go out, we want to have, like, that. that's how much we'll pay for it. But when it comes to dumplings, we want to pay cheap, uh, cheaply and and, and have that like little quick little meal and spend the rest of our night doing something exciting and fun. Exactly. Even though that you know making dumplings, for instance, actually takes skill and it takes time. It's very it's, Exactly. Yeah. There's a reason why people eat out for dumplings and they don't make it at exactly. home because it's labor intensive. Who can make dumplings? Exactly. And I guess like, you know, taking labor for granted, but also I think it could be a couple of things. Maybe the first part is people generally don't know. I mean, that's a very, like, naive thing to think that mm-hmm. no exploitation happens mm-hmm. ever. Um, but also the fact that people just don't care. Like, that's probably the second part. They don't really care. Yeah. Third one that I think kind of comes into this is that this idea that all international students are wealthy. No doubt you <laughs> will come into this country and you do need to have some money. Yeah. But people don't realize that there are different ways people come to Australia. So, for example, when you see an international student here, sometimes they are funded by their community back home. Mm-hmm. That's something you don't know that. you know. You, people don't know that. Before I even got to university, like I would see my dad and his friends pull their money for another kid in like the Sri Lankan community you know, who lost a dad or like the dad lost a job. And then we would all just pull our money and be like, yeah, hey, education is important. Finish it off, you know, finish your degree. And that's something that does happen behind the scenes. People just don't know that. And sometimes it's a case of the, the parents can pay the fees, but then they can't really pay the living expenses. And that's something that happens too. So people kind of feel like they have to, you know, get what they can get. And it's been unfortunate it works that way. And it's unfortunate that there are not a lot of outlets that can help those kind of students. But what about Fairwork Australia? Why don't international students find support there? Ken thinks that's not an option. You, you can report them to Fairwork, but so you lose your job. How do you make how do you make ends meet? Like that is not a support network. That is you burning your bridges. And we are completely fine with going to Chinese restaurants and eating there all over town, and not questioning how much the workers there are paid, because there is this underlying assumption that. If you have the money to come here and study, you're all right. You know, you don't have a problem making ends meet. And then we go back and worry about whether that's real fur or not coats or not. Ken told me about his friend, who, like him, was exploited and underpaid. Feeling thankful for just less than even the bare minimum. Having family in turmoil and what situations like that make people accept. <laughs> so... A while ago, I was actually working on a podcast when I interviewed a, um, a, a female acquaintance of mine who 
was not so well to do and she came here to study in in Australia she used to study in Sydney um and her her parents actually had to sell their apartment and move to a much smaller um place with with their grandparents in order to make ends meet so that she could pay her her um university fees and when she came here she had to earn her living for herself from scratch which is actually not you know all that uncommon really and in order to do that she worked at a cafe employed by someone um from the same um not just the, not just China but someone from the same province in China that she was from and she was paid $9 an hour and she had about two shifts a week for about 3 hours each so not enough to make ends meet at all but she felt blessed so um between Sydney uni and Melbourne u i just chose Melbourne u this is joe she knew she was being exploited but didn't have a choice it was be underpaid or not be paid at all but you were being paid a lot less than the minimum wage mhm and was this something that you were aware of at the time i was mhm but I have no other choice. Like you see it's so hard to find a job. So now I got a job no matter how much you pay because what I have is time. So I'm w- I was willing to use the time to change like exchange money mm-hmm. by time. Mhm. So yeah, although the payment was not we say it all was not legal or it's much lower but yeah, just no matter even a little i got i feel like thankful uh i would count so say $25 for 2 hours and this is like um let's say a a portion of my rent mm. so i would count uh for how many weeks a week i can pay a whole month rent mm. Mm. how many hours a week were you working when i just study it was only 2 hours a week mhm mhm it was it was like training only mm. and after i would say after after 10 to 20 10 to 20 weeks i got like whole afternoon and two whole afternoons and then like one whole day or two whole day like gradually mm. Mm. but that's during the two years during the two years of master so, so only work? gradually the workload started to get to her being underpaid and overworking to compensate had her tired sad and feeling depressed did you not feel like you were being unfairly paid sure i felt that way for numerous times like even i mean especially after a whole day like from from 9 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon like whole day just standing and walking working and only spent even less less than half an hour sitting down having at lunch and after mopping the floor after leaving the shop i was when i arrived home for for several times i was really started to cry just because of the super tightness just because i was too tired and and you're getting paid all of that in a day's work you're getting paid 70 bucks maybe yeah 90 this is ridiculous so Yeah, I was complaining and I was like I was like just feel too tired and uh I also wanted to quit the job but I could not because I need the money. Yeah. And I remember for one time I was like super tired and just complained to God and cried in front of the I mean in my prayer and then the other day they pay me like 17.5 per per hour wage. Mm-hmm. So I was like got on some my prayer but after that it mm-hmm. was still like 13 and now well how does that change all the time well it depends like sometimes they will give $5 more sometimes $10 more but normally average it's like 13 or 12.5 uh, mm-hmm. so currently do you know what you're entitled to Sorry, what do you mean? Like do you know like what sort of pay you're entitled to right now? Like how much you should be paid? Yeah. And so were you on good terms with your employer at the time, like the boss of that cafe? I was. 
Yeah, I was because they are quite nice. I mean, except for not paying legally. After time passed, the initial gratitude of finding a job passed. More and more, Jio felt reluctant to go back. Oh, in the beginning, in the beginning, I was indeed, I was indeed thinking in this way, because I cannot find a job. So, oh, now they offer me a job, and I was like, really, thank, thankful for. I mean, I was really thankful for them to offer me a job. But yeah, but then in the second year, and especially towards the end of my masters, I was like. Uh, I don't want to come. I really don't want to come. Mm. Yeah, even say when when my family they came for my graduation, yeah. I was like, uh, I want to stop for one or two week, and they were still messaging me or calling me to say, "Are uh, you welcome to come back?" But from my heart, I was not not yeah. not willing to come come back. Yeah. So I mean, unlike Joe, you. Weren't able to get a job in, I guess, any retail or working kind of exp- like any kind of like workplace, um, and and also you are an international student, and you had an interesting story about why that was. Tell us. Yeah. So when it came to retail and hospitality, I was rejected because my English was quote unquote too good. <laughs> what does um, that mean? What I does don't it know even what mean? that means. One person even told me that they didn't think international school students could speak as well or have such a high IELTS score and it was weird because like you can see that in my resume and also by virtue of me being in Australia you have to pass some kind of English proficiency test everyone has to pass some kind of English proficiency test um, borders won't let you come in <laughs> otherwise um, so I just find that really weird and I, I kind of feel like part of the reason why they didn't want to hire me was because I'm someone who can advocate for myself if something does happen you know I do have the language not just an accent, like I actually have the language, I have the words to put forward my case. Whereas there are a lot of people who might not have that. And it, I, can, I can only imagine how frustrating and how helpless that position can feel. If, you, I mean, when you find yourself in a situation. Do you feel like they were looking for someone who was vulnerable? Yeah, for sure. I think part of the lure of hiring international students is the fact that they are, not to say helpless, but they are more vulnerable. And kind of like open to exploitation because maybe they don't have their family here like you did. Maybe they're alone. Maybe they need to pay rent and pay bills and and they don't have the, I guess, the safety net. When you're unaware of your rights and you're in a foreign place, foreign land, foreign people, foreign language, and someone is threatening you or ha- is doing something that is... Um, how do we say, exploitative to you, honestly, you will probably feel scared. Um, You will probably, even if you do know the places to go to, you probably would be hesitant to go to them because that can, you know, have a backlash against you and you don't know how that's going to work. And, you know, the the repercussions are are huge. So that probably means that your fees are not going to be paid, your, pay, your rent's not going to be paid, and that probably means you're going to go home. And that's a huge investment. When people choose to come to Australia, people are literally shelling their money. People are putting all that they can into their kids' ed- education. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate that the system's like that. Gio, like Ken, knew about being underpaid. But Ken says, what exactly can you do? And what happens when exploitation is your only salvation? It's not that she didn't know she was being exploited. She has friends here, and she they talk, and she hears about people who are working and earning 23 bucks an hour, maybe even, you know, 40-something bucks on weekends. Like, that's not an uncommon thing. And these are people who have the same qualifications as she is, in fact, probably less than she, she, she has in the past, who are working at major retail stores in departmental areas, which she couldn't get. And... She felt blessed, and that is the same emotion that I felt when I worked at this chain, despite knowing that I was being exploited. Because there is this feeling where, like, it's almost like you're, you know, you're here. You don't have much of a choice. You're walking through a desert, and this is your oasis. You know, it doesn't matter how dirty the water is. It doesn't matter how little water there is. The point is that is the best you can get. And you know, how how are you supposed to feel when exploitation is the best you can get? Like, there's... You're not about to complain about it. 
Ken tells me the difference between types of international students and how they're treated. You don't tend to have as much of an issue when it comes to, for example, someone who comes from America finding a job here. You know, they've got the option of working at an Irish bar. They've got the option of working at a coffee shop or cafe. You know, at retailing at Meyer or which Chinese residents don't seem to have the same options. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of that does come from the language barrier, like I mentioned before. But like, it but is hard. Really, to language barrier? Because yeah. I'm talking to you right now, and your English is perfectly fine. And no. <laughs> a lot of international students' English is, you know, perfectly fine. And I think that is the crux of it. That there is a difference. You know, I, I like to say that you have Australian local residents. Australian local students, if if you like to put it that way, and you have international students, but it's really not that. It's you have people who come from Anglo-centric backgrounds, for lack of a better way to put this. You know, they're different, and an American international student is not going to experience the same challenges that a Chinese international student is going to face in Australia. Do we have some preconceived notions of particular international students, and if so, how do they form? We have this pre-assumptions that we make that Chinese students cannot speak English, and beyond that, that's not the main. Like I want to say that 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 is the only reason why Chinese students find it hard to get hired. I think it comes down to this assumptions that 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 the Orientals, for lack of a more cringe-worthy word, um, come from an entirely different culture and they have different expectations. And that's really not true because we just want to come here, we want to study, and we want to work and get paid the right amount for the work that we do. That we shouldn't work in the same establishments and be paid different income. You know, we shouldn't be doing the same jobs and getting paid different money. It it, it doesn't make sense. If we're in the same country, we should be paid the same amount of the same currency. And I don't think that expectation differs regardless of what country you come from. But from an employer's point of view. Like what I have heard in the past,、um, because I didn't actually talk about this before when I was talking about my friend who worked in Sydney at a cafe which exploited her. Because in this in, in that same cafe, that bo-、um, her her boss employed people from Australian backgrounds as well. They worked in the same cafe, did the same shifts, and they got paid twice her wage. And when she approached him about it, what what her her boss told her was that. Locals are more marketable. That when you have a familiar face to your store, people are more willing to come in. You know, people are more willing to come come here and spend their money. They're more willing to 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 f- frequently return to your establishment. Who's to blame for the current practices and the way we see international students worth? Ken knows exactly who. If you're feeling uncomfortable going to somewhere to dine or going to somewhere to buy clothing because the workers there. Come from a different cultural heritage from you. The problem are, is not with the workers. The problem is with you. <laughs> like that's the truth of it. But when you ask, can you really blame employers for selecting who they think is marketable? Yes, you can. <laughs> like you can blame them for thinking that way. Because by choosing people that you believe are more marketable based on their appearance. Based on their cultural heritage, you're just reinforcing these prejudices, especially when you're a person who comes from a minority cultural background as well. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to the Race Card. Big up. That was a really interesting story, Ahmed. And like I think, when you when you get interviews like that, you you hear how personal and how troubling situations、um, international students. Are facing in Australia, and、mm. I feel like people, like Ken says this really well. Like people put that to the back of their mind and feel like I don't need to think about that. I don't need to feel about that, and it's very hurtful. I, I imagine I'm not an international student. I can't imagine how it feels to be exploited in that way. I've got. I'm lucky that I have a parent who helps me out with my finances. That I'm able to get Centrelink. That I'm, you know, like I'm a, like I'm a、uh, a citizen of this country. So I have all these protections. But they don't, and and that really, I feel like we don't talk about this enough. We we see the odd article,、um, in the paper or interview on on television and whatever about Seven Eleven exploiting workers. But then that buzz period goes away, and 
it just goes back into the ether. No one talks about it. No one cares. And I think like it's very telling when international students coming to Australia is actually one of the biggest um, economic, how do we say, factors or whatever. Well, like, economic, so much, like, yeah, so much yeah, money goes to it. So, yeah, we actually bring, I mean, international students bring a lot of money to And the fact that even though we bring so much money, they, they don't have a lot of protection is very telling of what exactly they want from us. <laughs> mm. it's, it's the money, that's all it is. Money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's troubling. But that's our show for this week. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you don't forget, you can find our podcast on Acast, iTunes, by searching in Racecard. You can also find us on Tumblr, the, the which Arunthi uh, works on. Thank you, Arunthi, for working on the Tumblr. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Um, Facebook is uh, facebook.com forward slash Racecard show. We just hit 600 likes. Thank Yay. you all for everyone who's liking us and continue to like us. Um, help us get to a thousand. Come on. Uh, and uh, you can find us on Twitter at Racecard Pod. And you can also look, rate it and review us on iTunes. You know, we need to jump on those iTunes charts. If you like our show, why don't you help us out? Um, you can find me at AhmedJesus10. How, how, where else can they find you all? Well, you can find me at Amina's Yard. No, spa- no spaces, no capitals, just all together. I hope you know how to spell my name. <laughs> I've spelled it out for so. you in the past. <laughs> oh, you can find me at uh, A Arundhati. I'm going to spell my name because no one knows how to spell it. It's A-A-R-U-N-D-H-A-T-H-I. You can't find me. Because <laughs> I don't have anything. We'll, we'll get you a Twitter one yeah. day. Soon, hopefully. I think I need one, yeah. It took me like six months of convincing <laughs> before I actually got one. We, we can, we can kind of like, we'll rope you into it. We'll rope you into it. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's, that's bye from me. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. See ya, guys. <laughs> <laughs> 